In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Tamar Hallerman, the AJC's Washington correspondent, reporting straight from the heart of the swamp. How's it going, Tamar? Good. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on, as as always. Um, we're going to talk about two big stories this week, but the first was perhaps the dominant story of the week, and that was the death of U.S. Senator John McCain, a war hero and former presidential candidate who had really close ties with many Georgia politicians and, of course, many Georgia voters. He came in second in 2000 to George W. Bush in Georgia's presidential primary and second again by a more narrow margin in 2008 in the primary. And, of course, he wound up winning the state in the 2008 general election with 52% of the vote. And there is an outpouring from people who knew him, voted for him, and served with him. Tamara, what was that like? What did you hear? Sure. I mean, it was just universal praise from every corner in Georgia, and it was just overwhelming and immediate. Um, you know, we, we knew this was coming on, on Friday. The McCain family came out with a statement telling everybody, you know, they were stopping treatment. Uh, Senator McCain had a really aggressive form of brain cancer that he'd been fighting for more than a year. So everybody sort of knew it was coming. I think people had time to kind of prepare and say goodbye. And, and the outpouring was just immediate. Um, a lot of his former colleagues that we talked to in quarter, including former Senator Saxby Chambliss, um, Senator David Perdue, Johnny Isaacson, they all had stories about traveling the world with him, being able to see not only what he was like um, here in America, but but how respected he was on the, on the global stage. So it was a pretty amazing moment to see, you know, Democrats and Republicans kind of come together around his legacy. And it wasn't just lawmakers, of course. Voters came to us with stories. Um, so did, so did, you know, well-known high-profile operatives. One of them was Alec Poinovit, who is a, uh, a longtime s- supporter of the Purdue family, who's also the former treasurer for the RNC, who who talked about uh, McCain's were, role in fostering democracy all over the nation. He was part of a national uh, nonprofit group funded partly by the U.S. government that worked in Russia, in South America, in Asian countries to try to help promote democracy. So he had a big role internationally, of course, as well. Something else you heard from people, you know, McCain was 
obviously had this this complicated reputation. You know, he really embraced this this uh, maverick kind of uh, nickname. But he was on the opposite side of a lot of our, our Georgia lawmakers on a bunch of issues, including campaign finance reform for for the Republicans, immigration, certain components of of that debate. And and people said, you know, when when you were against or you know on the opposite side of the table from him, it could be hard. But you always knew where he stood. He was always up front with them, and that's something that we heard from a lot of people. And even in death, he's he's um, involved somehow in a in a controversy of sorts. Um, and it's an interesting Georgia angle. It involves the controversial appeal to rename the Richard B. Russell Senate building in McCain's honor. Russell, of course, was a former Georgia governor and longtime Senate power broker who had a very complex history. Can you tell us a little about that, Tamar? Sure. Um, well, first of all, we are talking about it's the oldest Senate office building on Capitol Hill. It's really beautiful. It's a Beau Arts style um, building right on Constitution Avenue, marble. Um, a beautiful multi-level rotunda with all these Corinthian columns. Both um, Johnny Isaacson and David Perdue have offices there. So did John McCain. And within hours of the news, um, you know, circulating that McCain had passed, uh, we had the Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer from New York proposing renaming this this office building in McCain's honor. Um, you know, Russell has a really complicated reputation. Um, he was kind of the first master of the Senate's um, kind of really complicated rules and procedures, and he was able to really bend that to his will. Um, he helped stall the, the Voting Rights Act for years over, um, you know, through his use of, of kind of legislative, you know, tools. And uh, he also had a lot of other kind of complicated <laughs> bills that, that history is not looking on so uh you know, so kindly. He had one bill that would relocate a lot of African-Americans out of the South to other parts of the, the country. He opposed anti-lynching legislation. Um, but at the same time, he uh, helped pass the bill that created the, the National School Lunch Program. He brought a lot of defense um, and military installations to, to Georgia really a towering figure in his day who mentored Lyndon B. Johnson, John Kennedy. Um, so there have been proposals for years uh, on Capitol Hill to, to change the name of that building because of his reputation as, as an arch segregationist. Um, but things really erupted this week um, when, when Schumer kind of brought that proposal forward. And, and his political descendants in Georgia, including former Senator Sam Nunn and Max Cleland, are, are both pointing to his, you know, the other side of his legacy as well. Um, can you talk about what they what they've been saying? Yeah, I mean, his supporters were saying, "Look, he was absolutely on the wrong side of the civil rights movement." I, I saw a quote from his niece in the Washington Post who said, "Yes, he was a racist, but he also had a bunch of you know very important contributions to the institution, and you should not be taking his name off a building." Um, you know, this comes at a time when the country is still debating the merits of, of Confederate monuments, um, of, of monuments of segregationist figures and what to do with it. So I think this coming in an election year, there was a lot and, and this coming from Senator Schumer, who's not exactly a beloved figure on the right. I think that caused a lot of Republicans up on the Hill to say, wait, let's take a second. Let's breathe. Maybe let's delay this discussion a little bit. But in the immediate aftermath of this proposal coming out, you saw a lot of um, colleagues of Senator McCain, including some Republicans who said they would be willing to rename the building. Well, it all boils down to it. A lot of people were going to be looking to Georgia's Republican delegation, that's U.S. Senators Johnny Isaacson and David Perdue, for guidance on how this plays out. What, what are they saying? 
Sure. Well, this is the sort of proposal that that kind of in the weird way that the Senate works kind of needs to pass unanimously. Um, This is kind of a Senate only bill. This does not need the signature of the president or the approval of the House. And for matters like this, um, at least in the past, they've always passed stuff like this with unanimous consent. So all 100 votes. So people really were looking to Isaacson and Purdue to kind of set the tone. Isaacson has not told us what his opinion is on this subject. He had a very fiery floor speech in, you know, defending Senator McCain's legacy and honor. Um, but he's also said, look, this week is about honoring his legacy. I do not want to be weighing in on this yet. We can talk about it in the future. Um, but, but David Perdue, who sits at Richard Russell's old desk in the Senate chamber has said, no, um, you know, we also need to take a step back, honor his legacy. But I'm, um, you know, he, he stepped just short of saying he's going to block it. He said he's likely to block it if he thinks things are moving too quickly. Um, but he really kind of is not favorable to this proposal. So bottom line it for us, do you, do you see this going? What's your gut tell you? Do you see this going anywhere next year or this year? <laughs> Definitely not this year. Um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell um, mentioned on the Senate floor earlier this week he was going to create this bipartisan gang, um, this group of senators that's going to meet in private, brainstorm different ideas for honoring Senator McCain here on Capitol Hill. And some of the things he mentioned was was hanging one of his portraits in in a reception area in the Capitol that's seen as kind of the Hall of Fame of senators, um, or perhaps renaming the Armed Services Committee room in, in his honor. McCain was, of course, the chairman of that committee. One thing he did not mention was renaming this this building in McCain's favor. Um, As far as I know, on on Capitol Hill, there's never been an instance of renaming an office building after it's been kind of christened one way. And and I think there's a question of optics, right? Um, There's a lot of distrust between McConnell and and Schumer. And I think McConnell knows that that during a midterm election year is is not a great time to start talking about Confederate monuments or or segregationist figures. So I think he really just wants to push this as far into the future as possible. And I think take it off the table. But that's just my opinion. And before we let you go, uh, now that we're at Labor Day, we're in the final two month or so stretch of the of the race for for governor and for all these contested U.S. House seats. What are you hearing from lawmakers in Washington about their their sort of post Labor Day plans? I, I, I take it they won't be in D.C. quite as much. Exactly. They've uh, at least the House has been gone the, this entire month of August for their annual recess. I think a lot of people have been kind of taking a breath going on some trips, um, kind of touring the district, talking to people. September up here is going to be brutal. They've got to fund the government past September 30th. Um, they're hoping uh, you know, to, to do it pretty drama-free to get out of town so they can uh, go campaign for re-election in October. But the president has also mentioned that he's willing to shut down the government uh, in order to get funding for his border wall, which Democrats say they will not give him as part of this spending deal. So it could be a super messy September. Leaders are certainly hoping it will not be, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. And we will be watching every single move under the Gold Dome and up in Washington. Thanks again for joining us tomorrow. Thank you.
Now I'm joined by Chris Joyner, an investigative reporter at the AJC. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. You and our colleagues, Johnny Edwards and Jennifer Peebles, wrote a remarkable piece for last week's AJC about the state's haphazard system for handling sexual harassment complaints that, that took about eight months of work to do. It was a remarkable story. Everyone should go to myajc.com and read it. But here's one of the most striking lines that you wrote. Does the state government have a significant sexual harassment problem? An out-of-control culture that fosters egregious treatment of workers, leaving state offenders in place to find other targets? State officials don't know. That just got me. That really is, I, I mean, that is really the remarkable part of it. It's not that there's sexual harassment in state government. I think it would be surprising to find that there wasn't, uh, it, because it's a, it's a commonality in workplaces everywhere. What's really amazing is, uh, even with all the attention that's been placed on this, there's no mechanism and no effort to discover at a centralized level in state government how big the problem is. In fact, even with all those months that uh, our, our great data reporter, Jennifer Peoples, spent collecting the data, we're not convinced we found it all uh, because there are some departments in state government that have no mechanism for collecting it even within their own department. Now, the AJC typically doesn't name victims of harassment, but um, you talk to a lot of people and, and several of them uh, gave us permission to use their names. Uh, one of the women you talked to who agreed to be named publicly, is, her name is uh, Jamie Duvall. She was effect- effectively driven out of her job at a state mental hospital last year by a male co-worker's incessant harassment. You, you found multiple stories like this. So what's being done to the, the alleged harassers? I mean, how, how, how is the state responding to these types of complaints? Uh, we know there's no uniform pattern that they're using. Um, but what what are some of the examples of, of how these how these alleged harassers are, 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 are being treated? Well, I think, Greg, you really hit on uh, uh, part of the concern here is that it's not uniform. So it's happening in a variety of ways. Uh, in Ms. Duvall's case, uh, we, you know, it's, there was an investigation. Uh, she made initial complaints that were not registered. When they finally were investigated, uh, she was already gone. You know, she had left because the harassment continued. Uh, she felt uncomfortable and left state employ uh, even before the investigation was complete. We've seen that in several cases. But in other cases, you know, there might be a pro forma investigation. There might be no investigation, you know, at all. Sometimes there's a very thorough investigation. But it's really uh, this lack of uniformity that I think is a greater concern uh, and it's something that we're following up on. And it's a lack of uniformity even in getting these records, right? Some some agencies you requested had the documents to you in, in a relatively brief period of time. Others said what? It would take, you know, uh, months of going through to find paper records deep in some sort of vault? And some uh, some could not produce records because they didn't keep them in a way that made it, uh, you know, uh, where they were able to extract sexual harassment complaints from other kinds of personnel complaints. Uh, and and some departments still haven't fully complied with the law. Uh, you know, as as we would interpret the open record law, they still haven't complied fully. Some uh, reduced heavily redacted records. Some reduced records that were not redacted. Um, and this goes to the fact that every one of these departments is operating under their own culture of what is and isn't sexual harassment. So again, it goes back to the the same issue we had before, which was no uniform standard. What does Governor Deal's office say about um, about its policies? I mean, Governor Deal's office says that there are policies in place under the state personnel board uh, and that uh, they've not engaged in, uh, in any sort of depth as to our, uh, in, uh, in our reporting. We believe that probably the next governor is the one who's 
more likely to address this. And that's something we're pursuing right now with both campaigns. And I want to get to that in a second, but um, I do want to ask, um, there is another case that you guys spotlighted, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, but Lynn Troja? That's correct. Yeah, Lynn Troja. And she's a secretary at a Georgia State Patrol Post near the coast who um, uh, filed a complaint about uh, incessant harassment. And um, you guys talked to a public safety department spokesman who said, and I'm quoting, from day one, it's obvious that it's unwelcome and it's inappropriate. And that's what he was saying about the harassment. And here's the rest of the quote. But at some point, she has to tell him about yeah. that harassment. Yeah, I mean, and that's not unusual. It's an, uh, an attitude that's carried not just in public safety, but in other departments that uh, there is some responsibility on the person who's being harassed to confront their harasser. And that's just not the case. Uh, it's not the case in policy. It's not in their training, but I do believe it is something that people uh, in state government uh, believe that uh, in trying to decide in an investigation as to whether or not there's some mutual sexual attraction uh, that you know they they look for the person who is being harassed and whether or not that person confronted the harasser and said, "Hey, I don't appreciate your behavior." Um, that's not the standard. Uh, in Lynn Troja's case, in the moment when she was uh, uh, receiving these sort of inappropriate comments from uh, the person she accused of harassment, she complained. She complained to her superiors. Her superiors then threw it back at her and said, uh, well, what do you want us to do about it? Well, that's also not appropriate. You can't require the person who's being, it's not good policy to require the person who's being harassed to essentially pull the trigger on an investigation. At that point, it should be the supervisor who uh, makes sure that that, that that complaint gets addressed. But again and again, Troja and other uh, uh, alleged victims uh, and that we've looked at in these complaints registered real-time complaints, and uh, they didn't always get treated as, as, as legitimate complaints in the moment. And you guys talked to a lot of experts, legal experts, who talked about these sorts of discriminatory, uh, discriminatory filings. Um, what, what was their advice for how the state could kind of reform, re- shape up uh, its reporting systems? Well, certainly centralizing the collection of data and making sure that outcomes are even and just uh, was a big takeaway that uh, we, we got from talking to uh, experts and policymakers. Uh, I think that was... You know, when we talked about each department, you know, essentially having their own standard for what works in far as uh, dealing with sexual harassment complaints, and a lot of them said that that just doesn't make a lot of sense. And we've seen other states uh, address this as well already uh, to centralize their uh, sexual harassment processes. Um, Georgia has not done so. Now, this story, as long as uh, as well as everything else we're writing the last couple months, is in the backdrop of an epic. Uh, election for for Georgia governor between Democrat Stacey Abrams and Republican Brian Kemp, um, and you've also reached out to both those campaigns for for their sort of, of plans for for tackling this issue. But um, what do you expect, and what do you think is next in in where these stories are going? Uh, well, we're we're looking at uneven outcomes. Uh, you know where similar complaints have been lodged uh, for different levels of state government. We have you know sort of blue-collar workers uh, and we have supervisory workers, we're, we're comparing those complaints to see whether or not uh, alleged harassers are being treated equally at those levels. We're looking across state government. Um, there are, uh, I think, 
unfortunately, there's a lot to dig into here, and we're going to continue uh, uh, looking at it. And one thing I would say is we're also listening out for people who are bringing us new information. We've set up a dedicated email address, which is harassment at AJC.com, for anyone who wants to bring forward what they know about uh, sexual harassment inside state government, and they can do so anonymously. And if you don't want to be um, quoted, if you don't want to have your public information out there, um, you guys will find a way to keep them anonymous, right? Correct. Uh, well, thanks for joining us, Chris. Sure we look thing, forward Chris. to seeing the next rounds of your stories. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.